Good morning again, everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. We've got a special podcast-only episode here. Just earlier this morning, we were doing 2 Samuel chapter 7 with Pastor Boyce Claire, and very fittingly here, talking about this oath that God makes with David here. We're looking at Psalm 132 now, which talks about same sorts of events here. So uh, very interesting because we, we observed that in 2 Samuel 7, the prayer that you have from David and the, the language that's there, it, it just, it feels very psalmy, uh, if that's a real word. And so here we're looking at Psalm 132, joined by our guest. We've got Pastor Charles Hendrickson, pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. Welcome back, brother. Thank you for all your patience and uh, getting this scheduled, but I'm glad that we could line it up this way. And just if people are following on the podcast, They'll get Second uh, Samuel 7, and then they'll get Psalm 132 right after it. So just dovetailing very nicely. Yeah, I think that is a good uh, combination. And as uh, I had said earlier, uh, when scheduling the Psalm 132, I said, can we at least do it sometime after Second uh, Samuel 7? Because it ties in so much with both Second Samuel 6 and Second Samuel 7. And as I listened to... Pastor Boyce Clare this morning, um, uh, speaking on 2 Samuel 7, he said, I remember two things he said. It's the most important chapter in 2 Samuel, <laughs> yeah, that's right. and it is a messianic mountaintop. And I concur fully with my brother David Boyce Clare on those things. Yeah, well, it, it really, you have these uh, these mountaintop moments, right? And, uh, you know, of course, I think that's a, it's, it's a nice way of putting it, especially when you have in the Gospels, um, well, I mean, a couple of mountaintop moments like the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, right? So, I mean, yeah, there, right. there's something about these moments on top of the mountain, right? And this would be Mount Zion that we're referring to this one. Yeah. Uh, because that comes into play in this. But when I have taught surveys of the Bible, which I've done a number of times, uh, I've always said that Second Samuel 7, I always tell the classes, this is one of the most important programmatic uh, passages in the Old Testament for the rest of the Bible. I would put it in uh, Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman who's going to stomp mm-hmm. on the serpent's head. I would yeah. put it with Genesis 12 with the seed of Abraham uh, bringing blessing to all the families of the earth. And this one in particular about the, the son of David who's going to have an everlasting kingdom. This is why I highlight always Second Samuel chapter 7. And this psalm uh, we'll bring in both emphases that we see in Second Samuel about the uh, the place, the the dwelling place, the temple that David wants to build, the house, right. uh, the play on the word house, uh, yep. both in terms of the house that David wants to build, the physical temple, but then the Lord turning it around and playing on that word house. I'm going to build you a house, David, and from your um, descendants, from your sons, is going to come one who will have an everlasting kingdom. So this psalm picks on both of those, picks up on both of those emphases, Second Samuel 7. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it makes a lot of sense to be using poetry to be talking about this, because the Old Testament demonstrates again and again that, that God clearly is an artist and has a sense of humor. Uh, and makes a few puns uh, along yeah. the way. So, yeah, good good stuff. Let's, uh, if you would, actually, before we uh, kind of turn to the chapter and get really rolling here, if you would start us off with a prayer. Be glad to. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes today, open our minds uh, to see in your word, uh, Christ, our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, the dwelling place of God in, our, in the midst of his people, the one who tabernacled among us and um, who brings us righteousness, salvation, and joy. Uh, through this son of David. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So turning to, to Psalm 132, um, you know, it's interesting to, to be looking at a psalm that's you know, back here in the, you know, book five of the Psalter. It's a, we, we see that it's a song of ascents. So it's one right. of these um, ladder psalms that that was used while while going up the steps to this temple mount, like you were mentioning here. So may, maybe if you could speak a little bit to 
the Psalms context as a as a psalm, uh, and kind of maybe how how that then links back to what we already started talking about the context in Second Samuel. Yeah, the uh, superscription here says a song of ascents. And remember that the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews would have several uh, pilgrimage festivals every year uh, for Pesach and for Shavuot and for Sukkot, for Passover, for the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, where all the Jews were supposed to come up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem, even if you're coming from the north, both Mm -hmm. topographically and theologically, you always go up to Mount Zion, and then within on Mount Zion, you go up the steps to the temple. So uh, these songs of ascent, this section of grouping, this grouping from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, uh, many of those psalms would be these the songs that the Jewish pilgrims would sing on the way up. Um, mm-hmm. And often there's a reference to Mount Zion uh, and going up to the, the hills and uh, uh, going up to the house of the Lord. And so it fits in that context. I, I think also it's interesting to consider how there's a bunch of these Davidic Psalms at the end of the Psalter. Mm-hmm. How I mean, you mentioned that the, the Psalm of Ascent, they, the Psalms of Ascent, they go through 134. Uh, following that, though, you've got a lot of these interesting um, Psalms of David that seem like a little bit like episodic. And so if you go to... Um, where was it? I think it's like Psalm, like one, uh, well, it's 141 in the Septuagint. I think it's one, would that be 142, I think, in the in the Hebrew? But um, you've got that Psalm then about, it's uh, when he was in the cave. So it's another one of like these, uh-huh. like stuck in the cave Psalms. Um, and then the yeah. next one, it's uh, when it says in the, again, in the Greek translation anyway, uh, when his son pursued him, so referring to when Absalom has this revolt, and then and then in, in the right. next one after that, it's uh, by David to Goliath. Um, so some really interesting superscriptions there. So it also I think kind of fits in with like these kinds of like big moments in David's life, and certainly these big moments right. in the story of First and Second Samuel. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, this one. While not saying of David, I, you know, it refers to David sort of in the past tense. It fits very well with what Solomon prays uh, when he dedicates the temple. Uh, about, and you see in Chronicles, especially David's involvement in the preparations for building the temple, even though David himself would not build it. He just longed for this. And uh, the project had to be handed off to his son, Solomon. So I think a likely author of Psalm 132 might be Solomon. It's unnamed here, but it, it, it would probably date from that time. Well, and that'll be interesting, too, to consider some of the connections between uh, father and son here, especially given, as you were saying, the, the wording and the perspective in the psalm. But let's go mm-hmm. ahead and just read it, read it through, kind of get it all out on the table here. Um, sure. and we can kind of maybe maybe take a couple of brief comments about just kind of looking at it as a whole kind of first impressions and then we'll mm-hmm. we'll circle back around and kind of look at some of the details in the first few verses. All right. All right, so here it is Psalm 132 uh, starting with the superscription that uh, we find in the uh, in the old text here. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. 
This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Okay. A lot of a lot of neat things going on here at the end. Uh, the focus on the clothing, and we've seen this before. Certainly, we saw in the narrative of First and Second Samuel with even uh, that moment of the first encounter in the cave there with uh, David cutting off the hem of Saul's robe, or earlier before that, uh, part of Samuel's robe being torn. Uh, the, the clothing is is always a big feature, and so there, there's kind of interesting stuff going on there at the end. Um, and then I, I think for me, maybe the thing at the, the beginning where it's kind of like focusing on these oaths, right? Um, yeah. The, the thing that's, I think, most striking for me is, hang on a second. Well, what's this oath that David swore, right? Because it certainly seems like David did uh, enter his house or go into his bed <laughs> before the temple question was sorted out, right? Like this, it's almost like I want to say, hang on a second. Who who made this oath? Was this David or Solomon here? But those, those are two of the things that jump out for me. Um, I don't know, any thoughts on those or, or some of the things that jump out for you? Well, I did want to talk about the, the, the clothing metaphor, which is not totally a metaphor. It actually, the priests oh, yeah. were clothed with special garments. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, that, that is sort of like point three, I think, in this psalm. The first two main points, I think, are about, it fits in with the songs of Zion, about the place, you know, where God dwells in the midst of his people. Uh, so it, it fits in with that theme, the songs of Zion, but also it is a clearly messianic psalm, um, uh, referring to the son of David, who's going to have this everlasting kingdom. Uh, so really in both respects, it's about Jesus. Uh, this Psalm is about Jesus uh, because mm-hmm. he is the one who, who dwells in the midst of his people to bless them. And he is the son of David, uh, the Mashiach, the Messiah, uh, who has the everlasting kingdom. And then the third point would be the results in, uh, because of this, that God's people are clothed and blessed with righteousness and salvation and joy. I think that the way that this psalm anticipates that greater son of David, right, that I, I, that's interesting, and it, it was something that struck me too, um, just having just compared this now uh, to what we read in 2 Samuel, because the wording um, in 2 Samuel 7 is, is a little bit different, Um and, and I think it maybe highlights this idea because, you know, he says, you know, in verse 11 there, like what, when Psalm 1 and 32 is giving this here, um, you know, one of the sons of your body, I will sit on your throne. That that seems almost uh, exactly the same as it was in Second Samuel, right? But then, mm-hmm. then you have, if your sons <laughs> keep my covenant yeah. and my testimonies that I shall teach them their sons also forever shall sit on your throne, right? So now now we have this, like, hang on a second, right? There's, like, this this contingency, right? And um, from what I recall, when we just did Second Samuel Sam, uh, 7, I don't remember there being a kind of contingency there. It's like, well, you know, uh, you know, he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him. Right. Yeah. But that's but that's that's just it. There's there's no kind of like hint of uh, this ever running out. But but I think it is interesting how Psalm 132 has a little bit of a different perspective, which I think is kind of speaking to how it's like speaking with hindsight saying and apparently not all of David's sons quite lived up to this. And we're still kind of waiting. Exactly. That's exactly the point. I mean, if you look at the Davidic line, the kings of Judah, some of them were good, some of them were very good, some were okay, some were bad. Uh, None of them lived up to the language uh, promised of this one son of David who would have an everlasting kingdom of blessing. So 
Yeah, Solomon didn't. Rehoboam didn't go down the line. Even the best ones, uh, Asa, Hezekiah, uh, Josiah, who was probably the best one. But some of them were pretty bad. And then uh, about 597 B.C., Babylon takes uh, King uh, Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. And that's the last Davidic king independently ruling in Jerusalem. And then you got 600 years of mostly nobodies. And then out of the line of David, you know, when it seems like it's a stump that's been cut off, up shoots yes. this little uh, sprout. And it's uh, Jesus who is the son of David. And uh, uh, if you look at uh, Matthew's genealogy, it goes back to David, uh, yeah. the genealogy of Jesus. And if you look at the words of Gabriel, the messenger angel uh, mm-hmm. with the Annunciation of Mary, he paraphrases Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 uh, in reference to Jesus as the son of David who will have this everlasting kingdom. Roll, yeah, and that's um, it's. I'm glad that you mentioned this right now, actually, right? Because there's that line in Second uh, Samuel seven verse sixteen, right? Your throne shall be established forever. A uh, big, big moment there, right? And and you're saying like uh, it's like Luke one thirty three, I think that that kind of is something like very similar to that. Um, and, and then you also get that same sort of language too in Hebrews, right? Which um. I mean, quotes from like a whole bunch of these messianic psalms, but I mean, like this idea of there being this like eternally established throne, right? This dynasty that wasn't mm-hmm. going to end, that wasn't just going to fizzle out or be reduced to a stump, right? Like it's, you know, we're we're in Second Samuel seven, we're like really hoping it's it's Jonathan, <laughs> right? And then in Psalm one thirty two, it's sort of like. Well, it was sort of Jonathan to an extent, but but not really. Still, still looking forward to it. Yeah, it's kind of like what Boyce Claire mentioned this morning about you know in Genesis four where uh, Eve has this son. Is yeah. he going to be the seed of the woman that stomps on the devil's head? Well, no, that's not the one. So yeah. it's always anticipating who's going to fulfill these great Old Testament covenantal promises, yeah. and uh, we don't find that out until the New Testament. Well, yeah, and, and then even in the New Testament, right, like you, you get the disciples, like, Lord, are, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom uh, to to Israel, right? Like, well, mm-hmm. not, wait wait for it, you know what I mean? So, that's the so, way you're uh, thinking of. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Right, right, right now, in a way, you know, but but there's still going to be some stuff that happens later. So, I mean, there there kind of always is that 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 tension, right? Like the partial fulfillments, the fulfillments that are unexpected. Um, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. all, always always challenging and guiding us along the path of faith. Well, let, let's look at the some of the details here, uh, taking sure. it back to the top in, in Psalm 132. Um, so, you you already broke down for us uh, the song of ascents here. Um, interesting the way that verse one then begins, verse one proper, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. I think that's a, that's a unique opening there. Um, what, what do you, what do you make of the way that this opens up, you know, uh, remembering in David's favor, all the hardships he endured? I mean, it's a very interesting thing to ask God to call to mind. Yeah, it's, I I think particularly, I mean, David had many hardships, some of them self-inflicted, uh, later in his reign, but I think this is referring especially to the hardships he uh, endured in bringing the ark to Jerusalem hmm. um, and his uh, desire to build a house for the Lord. And uh, so I was looking back at, um, for example, Second Samuel chapter 6, right. about David bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and uh, there was some, uh, it didn't go so smoothly all the way. So at first they go to yeah. the uh, house where the um, the ark had been located for some time. You know, David's uh, in Jerusalem. He wants to bring the ark to where he is. Um, so there's this stumbling, and Uzzah touches it by accident and is struck down, and David doesn't understand that. He doesn't like it. Um, yeah. It says uh, in Second Samuel 6 that he's angry. Yeah. Um, about this and uh, he's afraid and at first he's unwilling to continue to bring 
the Ark to Jerusalem. And so it stays there at the home of what Obed Edom, I think for three months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, there's blessing there. So he says, okay, I guess it's okay. And we'll, uh, uh, continue to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. And so then uh, he does, and he's, uh, very joyous and happy with it. He takes off his kingly robes and puts on a priest's ephod and his wife, Michael or Michal, uh, complains about this. So, um, it wasn't just an easy thing that he did in bringing the ark to Jerusalem. I'm thinking, and it, maybe you've got other thoughts, but I think that those would be some of the hardships he endured in bringing the uh, ark to Jerusalem and his desire to build a house for the Lord. What do you think? I, I think that that has... Um... It has, I think, particularly this going for it. That right after you have the uh, th- this this call right to God to to bring this stuff to mind, you know, in, in verse two, then you seem to have this kind of uh, restatement. You know how how he swore to the Lord, right, and, and vowed this, mm-hmm. and, and so it, it's like I, I think that the way that the text reads, it's sort of like assuming that David is like, okay, you know what? Like, I am going to make this happen. <laughs> we we are yeah. going to, we are going to get the ark, right? It's been sitting at, like on that hill with Abinadab for who knows how long, right? We are going to move yeah. it back into the capital and the new, the new capital, right? Like where it belongs. I mean, the way that the ark used to be, right? In Shiloh with Joshua, right? Or that the, yeah. that the way that it was with Moses, right? Yeah. Wherever they would go. It's yeah. like, you know, we're not going to have it like, shoved off to the side in some museum here, right? Like, we're going to br- yeah. bring it into the midst of God's people like, like it's supposed to be. And so I, I think, I think, yeah, that really lines up then, this idea of, of David having these setbacks, right? Having mm-hmm. these, these problems come up. And then he's like, you know, in verse 3 then, no, I, I'm not going to my house or going to bed, right, until I make this happen, which... Then I guess in that way, like we we wonder if is, is that kind of like hyperbole or is that like you know he makes this oath and God's like yeah, okay I'm gonna like let you off of this oath because <laughs> you're not, you're not gonna be sleeping for a very long time then and so yeah. God God like lets him off the hook but um yeah, I, 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 I like I like the any, suggestion we we use that sort of idiom don't we I'm not gonna rest until this happens that's right that's right that's right yeah <laughs> of determination right it's interesting by the way that Nathan comes to David at night. <laughs> yeah, uh, with with this message, but uh, it wasn't that he, you know, he went without sleep for forty days or something like that. It's just a, <laughs> an expression of uh, determination. Yeah, oh, I, I think that that that's a it's a natural uh, way way to talk about it here, and, and like you know, lest anyone say like, well, no, hang on, like you know, he goes and elaborates, you know, not give sleep to my eyes. But remember, I mean, this is this is the the poetry right of of Psalm one thirty two. Uh-huh. The Psalms are always going to have this where, I mean, I mean, not not always exactly this, but very often, right, where you've got like one line that's uh, that kind of throws something out there, a second line that kind of clarifies it by kind of poetically restating it. Um, and yeah, that just, that, that pattern. Yeah, yeah right. The, the parallelism that is the distinctive feature of Hebrew poetry. Right. So, so then, um, so then this is interesting. So then when it gets to verse five, when he says, until I find a place for the Lord. So now is this getting at the temple or is this just like we were saying, um, kind of narrowly, just being like, you know what? No, we're we're going to move the Ark of the Covenant uh, to to be where it needs to be, um, and 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 maybe we shouldn't necessarily read into this that um, it, it's the temple quite yet. But step one is just let's just get the Ark where it belongs. Yeah, and uh, the Hebrew words there in this verse are interesting. The place is the makom. Yeah. which is a sort of a general term for a located place. But then uh, in the parallel line, a dwelling place, it's the word Mishkan, yeah. uh, uh, which was used for the, the tent, the tabernacle. So it's talking about uh, doing what the tabernacle did on their, the portable tabernacle on their journeys, but now they're settled in the land and David wants a permanent dwelling place. Uh, in in uh, Jerusalem, there. 
I, and so I the think... Lord is enthroned on the ark. Right. Uh, that's his throne you know, with the cherubim, the near ones attending him with their outspread wings. And that's uh, what he wants now in, uh, in uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. I, I, I and think his so. Oath, his oath is not, you don't find this oath expressed right. in Samuel or Chronicles, but it conveys uh, his attitude, uh, his desire, his strong desire for uh, this, having this, as you say, not shoved off in some remote location, but right central uh, where the king is, uh, there will also be the priests and the, uh, the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. Yeah, and I th- and I think that that's um, I, I mean it, it's playing off of the, the same sort of reversal that you do get in Second Samuel explicitly, right? Uh, because you know he's like, you know what, we're gonna build God a house, right? And then he's like, hang mm-hmm. on, you gonna you gonna build me a house? I'll build you a house. And so the reversal kind of almost works here too, where it's like, you know, I'm I'm making an oath. To, to help God, and then God's like, you are going to make an oath to help me? How about I make an oath to help you? So, I mean, like, it, it's, I think, kind of the same the same idea there, though mm-hmm. it emphasizes the oath, I think, then, more than the house, which um, I think is a, a little bit of an interesting shift again that maybe kind of lines up with that, you know, Psalm of Ascent's perspective uh, in, in later times where, well, you know, after you see Jerusalem destroyed, right, and the and the royalty uh-huh. deported, you're having that little bit of that reflection, that maturity of, you know, heaven and earth pass away, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Yeah. So it's where God can be found to guard and guide and forgive his people and to bless them. It's his royal throne from which he he, his glory goes out and his blessing goes out. That's the significance of the ark. Uh, I, right, right. See, seeing it as the, the, the connection to, to the word, and, and that's the thing that really ultimately hallows it, um, and, and not particularly that it's like, well, you know, we used like really precious materials or um, I, I don't know. It's like it, it's very old. Or <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, and, it, and um, it's not a magic amulet. Right. Uh, because they had disasters, defeats when they had the ark, because uh, the rest of their it was accompanied by unbelief. And uh, uh, so it wasn't like the, the ark is a like, like I say, an amulet. But mm-hmm. uh, when it is used faithfully, it was the Lord's presence uh, for his people in their midst. Um, the the only other thing I wanted to, to to look at, you know, some of this language of, of dwelling place and being in the midst uh, and, and things like this. So so just in terms of the language here, it's just it's just interesting. So back in Second Samuel chapter seven, you know, he says to Nathan, so you know, I'm in a house of cedar, right? And and, and you mentioned it, like the the word house, and, and we'll want to talk about that some more. Um, so I'm 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 in a house, right, of cedar. Um, but the ark of God dwells in a tent, right? So it's interesting because the the initial bit there, right, is is about God's ark, right? It's like, hang on a uh-huh. second, like the the ark is just, yeah. I mean, because we remember um, in the story of First Samuel, you know, they get the ark back because it was a huge tragedy, and there was all of this emphasis, right, on the ark that how how they lost the ark, the Philistines had the, the ark. The Philistines, right? right? That's right. And so, like, okay, we get the ark back, and we we take it to Beth Shemesh, and more disaster. It's like, oh no, <laughs> and and what so what happens? That they, they go and they put it up on this hill. So history repeats itself, seemingly. Uh, when, when David tries to bring it back down, disaster, and it's like, okay, let's go put it back on the hill there. So um, th- this this idea of, wait, hang on, we, we got to find a place, right, um, for this ark, right? It, it, this is unacceptable that we just keep having disaster strike and uh, and, and that, the, that the presence of God would not be uh, a blessing uh, or and rather be a, a curse as it just keeps happening again and again. So... Um, it's interesting then that, yeah, here he, he's saying that the, the issue, right, is that um, the Ark of God dwells in a tent in Second Samuel 7. Um, 
and and there right in verse five until i find as you were saying a place for the lord a dwelling place uh and i think i think you mentioned is is that the same word uh, the word for place is uh, makom, and the word for dwelling place is uh, mishkan, which yeah. was used for the tabernacle. There's another word for dwelling that'll come up for God's dwelling, uh, yeah. which is yashtav, that will come up later in the psalm. But uh, sometimes yashtav and mishkan can be used uh, interchangeably. Interesting, uh, I can't help but thinking about how Jesus fulfills all this. Because yeah. in uh, John chapter 1, the famous John one fourteen, and the word became flesh, and uh, the word there is skenao, which is right. a, a cognate, a, a loan word from the Hebrew shakan, uh, right. which was used for the tabernacle. He tabernacled, he dwelled like Yahweh dwelt in the midst of Israel in the, uh, in the Mishkan. So to bless and to forgive and uh, where sacrifices are made for forgiveness and so forth. Jesus is the temple of God. Uh, tear down this, te- destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. So and in Revelation, I just can't help jumping to <laughs> Jesus on all of this because he fulfills all of this. Uh, absolutely. Well, and it's interesting to think about like how, how those words for, for tent or dwelling place, right? Like how they, how they're very intentionally used to, to do these sorts of things. And I, I think so that, um, in John one, you, you have a, a deliberate move there being made, right. To compare the Lord with the tabernacle. Like, like we should be getting uh-huh. this idea of, Oh, hey, you know how we, we keep trying to receive the te- the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and it keeps basically ending in disaster, right? Like, well, like John one, it's like, hey, look, the Ark of the Covenant's coming, and this time it's it's actually working, right? I mean, because it's it's yeah. a person ultimately, and not a not a box. Um, and so that's interesting then to to have that those very intentional language um, hooks there, because um, right. looking at the language in Second Samuel, he doesn't use the word for uh mishkan like you were saying he he, he just says um tent he just uses this word that's like what is it it's like a it's like yaria it's uh kind of like a I, I think it's a kind of like a more general term for like a yeah there there are general terms for tent but also when it's speaking of the tabernacle it'll generally use the word mishkan right right so so i so i wonder and actually this is like maybe even a Maybe this is too far afield, but I think people sometimes ask, hang on a second, what happened to the tabernacle, <laughs> right? Because like there yeah. in like Joshua, it's like, okay, we got this tabernacle in Shiloh. And then it's like, you just kind of like don't hear about the tabernacle anymore. <laughs> you hear about the ark still, right? Uh, do you well, make you know, anything? Well, you the history of Israel, yeah. Yeah. there were ups and downs in their keeping of what the law of Moses would prescribe. Yeah. Sometimes they would go a long time and not observe the Passover or, you know, so even though the law of Moses specifies you have this tabernacle and then the priests do this and that and the burnt offerings and so forth, there were periods where they slacked off on those things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also we, we kind of, um we kind of underestimate too, just like the, the, the circumstances there that like, I think that, Slack off is, uh, I, th- I think, fair some, uh, for some of like what happened. I think also though, it's the, like I think the stuff just gets forgotten. You know, like you, we, especially like in the time of the judges, where it's like everyone's just kind of doing their own thing and just trying yeah. to survive um, by themselves, and they're they're disconnected from each other. They're disconnected from the the priesthood in many cases, right? And so uh, the source that they would have, who would be able to come and explain these sorts of things. Um, or remind them of these sorts of things, right? They're, they're not hearing it, um, which I think in some ways is maybe something that we relate to these days. Yeah. So I'm thinking also of like Josiah with his reform of the temple worship. And you see this like with, with Ezra and the post-exilic period. So where somebody uh, acts to restore the proper worship, observing the Sabbath, the uh, making the right, you know, observing the Passover, this sort of thing. So there, there were these ups and downs in the history of Israel. So, so I think then, uh, as we look at, at, at David's oath here, um, you know, you, you, can, you can tell, 
um, with the way that's been picked up here in like in Psalm 132 as well, that I think I think the point, right, what he's saying is, you know, we, we keep doing this stuff and it's like sometimes we do it this way, sometimes we do it that way. You know, um, who knows if it's like, you know, whatever happened to the original tabernacle, it, it seems like in all likelihood that they were using maybe like makeshift tents uh, at different points mm. in time that to varying degrees <laughs> resembled the tabernacle, right? But but his point is like, look, we have to stop just improvising here. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's time to just do things, right? Like by the book, so to speak, right? And, right. Um, and I think King David wanted to restore that proper worship yeah. um, and uh, that may have uh, been neglected for a while. And so also with Solomon, who actually got around to building it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, and so then the I think dimensions, it's all oh, yeah, the ahead. same dimensions, just twice as big as the tabernacle. Yeah. Right. Like all the, all the same proportions and yeah, it's a, you see a lot of striking similarities. So, so then, um, so, so speaking of the, the, ta- the tabernacle again, you get this quote then, you know, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields yeah. of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. So there's our tabernacle word there, right? So, okay, yeah. what, do you, what do you make of this quote then? And, um, and then verse eight, right? You know, another term for it, resting place. Finally, the ark is actually mentioned. So now there's a little shift here. What do you make of like these sets of words, particularly again, right. this, uh, this dwelling place word? You know, and this, the parallelism here in verse uh, six, you'll find that kind of a passage elsewhere, you know, like tell it not in Gath, you know, yeah. and don't let them say this in uh, Ekron or whatever. Um, so these geographic locations here. So Ephrathah, you all, everyone knows this famous uh, messianic prophecy about Bethlehem Ephrathah, right? Mm-hmm. So um, this would be the area around Bethlehem, which was the city of David, where David came from, Bethlehem, not far from Jerusalem. Uh, so that would be uh, where we heard of it. But then they go... To, it says the fields of Ja'ar, which would be the, the town of Kiriath Jarim, which mm-hmm. is where they uh, recovered the ark and started bringing it toward Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, th- I think it then is is going back to David's intention, right? That like people people knew, like, hey, David wants to do this, right? Like he he wants yeah. to, you know, bring the ark back into like a, a more central place, right? Because I think we even kind of saw this a little bit with Saul. Um, you know, again, don't want to like like give, use like an unfair measure um, on anyone here in their context here. But you, you get a little bit of a sense, or at least I did um, in First Samuel, that Saul was sort of like, Oh, you know what? This is going to be a really bad battle. Here, bring the ark. Go get that. Right? Like we want to. We want to make yeah. sure we have like a backup plan here. Um, and then mm-hmm. it's like you know, okay, start priest doing your thing. And it's like, oh, hey, never mind. Actually, I think we got this. You can you can put the ark back now, right? Like, um, I want I, I wonder if there's a little bit of of that where where like the ark is just it, it's not it's just not central anymore is that a sense that that you get to and that like in these verses here six seven eight like this is the the idea of hey we we want this to be central like we want it to be all about god's presence and not just kind of like as an afterthought anymore yeah you remember when the the lord told uh, israel through moses that when you enter the promised land there are not going to be many shrines there's just going to be one central location and that's what this is doing is, I mean, you could have it off in some far off hill country's place, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it seems in God's providence that Jerusalem is going to be the place. And he goes along with David's desire. Uh, and uh, actually that the, that the Lord has chosen uh, Zion for his dwelling place. So, uh, David desired it, and the Lord approved of it, and it was his choice. Um, but here in verse 7, you have his dwelling place, and uh, uh, and then his footstool. Let us worship at his footstool. So in, in royal language, the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the cherubim, uh, outspread wings, this was seen as God's throne, where he is ruling all things for the sake of his people. Uh, so that's the significance of the ark. 
Um, yeah, and then you've got words like resting place um, in mm-hmm. verse uh, in verse eight. So you've got uh, dwelling place, footstool, resting place. You know, and when the Israelites came into the promised land, the Lord said, uh, "You walk in my ways, and you will experience rest." That means um, you won't be in constant warfare and conflict. Each man can sit sit under his own fig tree, and you'll enjoy the uh, the, the, the land of milk and honey, and uh, everything will be cool. Uh, so yeah. that's uh, the Lord's resting place. This is Sabbath. Well, and and I think too, this we're seeing like how like the poetry really functions here. That you know, each one of these terms that are synonyms, they have like a little bit of a different flavor to them. Like you were saying, they right. kind of have like are associated with some different um, passages, different stories, right? So on the one hand, you you kind of have all these kind of different ideas, kind of coming in and kind of the, drawing together all these different strands. But on the other hand, too. Um, by by kind of putting all these words, lining them up, dwelling place, footstool, resting place, ark, um, you know, dwelling place again earlier, right? There, there's also kind of, I think, this kind of like Venn diagram effect where all these things are all lining up. And so you kind of then are saying, okay, what do all these words have in common? The, the idea being a permanent place, like a, a place that a doesn't just keep... I know. Yeah, that's right. I liked how they, uh, Pastor uh, Boyce Clare, this, he and I probably had... Dr. Nagel at the seminary, because <laughs> Dr. Nagel would also always talk about uh, the locatedness, yeah. uh, where you be sure to find God's grace and mercy and blessing. Um, and now we would recognize that where where the word and the sacraments are. Uh, those are that's where you can be sure God is dwelling with you to bless you. Right. Well, so exactly that, that and you used. I think maybe one of the the key words here with this idea of an uh, a permanent place be sure right like how can then we be sure about where god is right like and, and not to have this mm-hmm. this kind of like well maybe he's here and maybe he's there and maybe this this will you know maybe the philistines will take the ark maybe we'll get it back you know to to stop having this sort of you know uncertain uncertain and kind of improvised back and forth thing and, and to have have this solid thing this um th- this uh you know locatedness also kind of this like fixedness right and so yet yeah, you have that yeah. um, in this interesting way then with the sacraments because regardless of where you happen to be it's like what when you have this when you when you have this gathering in spirit and truth it's like boom there there it is we we have this uh, th- this assuredness, and, and I think that maybe we're circling around that then in the language here, uh, where you then get to God's oath in verse eleven, a sure oath. Mm-hmm. It says, right, like this is this is what we want. We want a sure thing. Yeah, yeah, very good. So um, also uh, now notice here uh, in verse we didn't cover verses nine and ten yet, um, and here's what I described as the results of all of this is that we receive righteousness, uh, joy. Uh, In verse 8, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout shout for joy. So the word there for priest is uh, the Kohen, um, which was an office in Israel, who attended uh, at the the tabernacle in the temple, and they're clothed with righteousness. And we think of these special priestly garments which betokened uh, God's being with them, that they are holy to the Lord. So they're clothed with righteousness, the Zedek, Zedekah there. Uh, and then your saints shout for joy is the parallel line. And I was thinking, well, maybe is this the word for uh, Kadosh? No, but it's the word with the root of chesed, of God's uh, steadfast oh. love, his mercy, the chesedim. The yeah. Right. Uh, that they will shout for joy. So again, um, the fulfillment then is that we are God's priests, we're priestly people, as First Peter 2 says, and we are the ones who receive his steadfast love, his mercy, we're the chesedim. So um, uh, here is the benefits of God's righteousness, his doing the right thing for us, and uh, the joy that we experience because of that. Well, and I think that this 
uh, psalm, as you were saying, has very much a, a tone and a perspective of of joy, and there and there might be a couple levels to that, um, where it, it does at the beginning acknowledge that there were hardships, difficulties, doesn't name them, right? Doesn't dwell mm-hmm. on them, um, but so the the perspective here is in in a few ways now different from that of. Second Samuel, right? Where, where Second Samuel, you're you're getting a little bit of a, I think, more of a raw picture of what was going on, and you you have the, um, you know, the the reversal where David's like, well, I want to do this, then God's like, um, no, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. but here th- there is no, I mean, there is no God telling David no, right? I mean, which yeah. which is interesting, yeah. right? I mean, not that it's contradicting it, but it's just it's focusing on something else here, right? Like like he never says no in Psalm 132. And in fact, really, I think that the way it presents it is if really, um, you know, I, I think, I think kind of maybe in, on a deeper level, God's saying, no, Solomon's going to build me the the house, right? Is in yeah. some ways an improvement, like saying like, you know, David, no, 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 you don't have to be afraid that, you know, if, if, if you don't do this and it's not going to happen, right? Uh, or that you uh-huh. know you got to do this to establish yourself. No, your 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 throne, your house is so sure because of me. You don't even have to do it. it your son's going to do it because it's based on me, not you. Yeah, right. And again, uh, uh, you know, it will be left to the to the son of David to build uh, the permanent house, uh, the heavenly house. Uh, and to have the everlasting kingdom. That'll be Christ himself, his Messiah. And by the way, so, we get the word Messiah then in verse uh, 10. Yeah. Uh, your anointed one, your Mashiach. So uh, David had been anointed, right, by Samuel mm-hmm. to be king. But uh, ultimately, it's the son of David, one of his sons, who will be the Mashiach. Uh, the Christ is the Greek word for, for that. Yeah, that is an interesting verse right there, verse ten. It's um, it's really kind of um, a little bit, a little bit short as a verse goes, um, in between um the verses in the context, and I, I think that's probably why some scholars are sort of thinking that like maybe there's like something, something kind of fell out right there. Um, but it's an interesting phrase, right? Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Um. I mean, like, I feel like usually in the Psalms, you have the language of do not turn your face from me. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. So it's kind of kind of interesting putting it this way. What, what do you make of, uh, yeah, don't turn away the face of the anointed one. Well, God lifts up his countenance upon you uh, right. with his face. It's like he's shining on you with his grace. So um, uh, that. God, that he wouldn't turn away my face from you, Lord, uh, because of my sins or other, you know, whatever, but that I can fully receive your blessing. It's an interesting picture. It reminds me of Psalm 51, where David prays that the Lord would uh, not turn him away because of his sin. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can't. So, uh, in Psalm fifty-one, there, right? Is that is that like? Well, I mean, there's there's the. I'm trying to think of it because like I have a couple different translations of that bouncing around in my head here, but it's like uh, is it like tur- turn me not away from your presence or something like this? Yeah, I'm looking at Psalm fifty-one right now. Uh, hide not hide hide your face from my sins. Yeah. Uh, cast me not away from your presence. Yeah. Uh, etc. So yeah. Uh, it, it's like not being uh, turned away from God. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it's, it just makes an interesting uh, picture then, right? Because like you were saying, it's like, so God is looking at us, right? Um, and it's his face that's shining the, the, the blessings. And, and that's that's certainly, I think, the focus, I think, throughout the Old Testament. You're, it's, it's his face, right? You get that in the Aaronic yeah. blessing, right? Like, you know, right. uh, that his face would be shining on us. Uh, but that's the other that's the other side of it, though, right? It's like, well, the, the face of God shining on us, right, is is not going to work out, right? If we're not, 
not, I mean, understanding this rightly, like not that it's like a precondition or something like that, or like we got to do our part, but just that because he has turned our faces graciously towards him, right? You kind of think of mm-hmm. like, um, like, like a, like a solar panel being in the right spot. So it actually gets the, the sunlight, right? Or, 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 right. Or, right. Or like a plant, right. Being put, uh, or right. Like not, not being put like, you know, underneath a, you know, a barrel or in a dark place, but being put out where, where the sun is going to actually reach it here. So that, that's, yeah. I think very interesting here that you have kind of the, the other side of the, uh, the equation, the other shoe, it's like not talked about as much, but, but perhaps, you know, maybe in a sense, right, right now, uh, from the perspective of the Psalm of Ascent, like the Messiah is kind of like buried, like you said, like the 600 years of, uh, there really isn't a D- Davidic Messiah really, right? It's like the, it's like the Davidic uh, Messiah is, is like dead and in a dark place and we need to have him go back into the light. Right. Although the physical line of David continued, which is the sign of hope that God is going to remember his promise and raise up this, uh, this righteous branch of David. Well, no, that's right. And so, so there is, um, you know, it's, it's still hanging on there. Right. Um, but it's, it, I think it's kind of like the language in Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the dry bones, where you could still talk about Israel as a house being dead, right. And still being yeah. like a Valley of dry bones. And so in the same way you could talk about like the line of David being dead and needing a resurrection. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that this is like an anticipatory, um, Christ moment with like Easter, the idea of, you know, don't let David stay in the darkness, right? Don't let David stay in the tomb here. Um, Put David back into the light. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, Well, so kind of, we're going to kind of just take the last part kind of in in summary here then. Um, But, but kind of looking here at these last several verses now. um, So we were kind of talking about, verses 10 and a little bit of uh, verse 11 just now, but just kind of taking verses 12 uh, through 18 in summary here. Uh, the clothes, I, I think, right, a big big part of this here, um, that the shining happens again at the end. Um, and then somewhere in the middle, we, we get this talk about the poor, which I, I don't know. I mean, you had mentioned Luke earlier. I, I find that to be very fascinating. Yeah, I will abundantly bless her uh provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Uh, This is the theme of, uh, you know, when we talk about the great reversal, how God brings down the haughty and raises up the poor and needy, Um, you know, that that God will, the Christ in the Beatitudes, which we're going to hear this coming Sunday, about uh, that those who hunger and thirst will be uh, satisfied. So, yeah, that uh, God will satisfy the poor. And, uh, you know, Mary brings that up in the Magnificat there, also in Luke chapter 1. Well, and I think that, you know, we, we can, I think, see how in the New Testament there are these, um, like, like you were just saying, like in the Magnificat, in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, how there there is this emphasis that's like, hey, we're, we're going to take care of the poor, because that's one of the things that happens in the kingdom of God. Um but we might be asking now. Hang on a second. Like, what's it doing here, though? Right? Like, it seems kind of um, like all of a sudden. But uh, we remember back in Second Samuel chapter six how this is, this is interesting, right? Like, he has this big festival dedication celebration, and maybe, yeah. uh, well, not just maybe, but certainly that was not all not all good, right? There were some some bad aspects of that too, but. One of the things that you did have happen, which I thought was interesting, didn't really chance to talk about it, but um, he it says like he gives away all this food, right? Like, yes, uh, he distributed food to the poor. I mean, as yeah. a big celebration. Yeah, it says there he distributed among the, all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And all the people departed each to his house, right? And so there's this moment of hey, the Messiah feeds his people. The Messiah gives bread. The Messiah um, nourishes. Because of the Messiah, the the poor are fed. And and seeing that as a part of the Messiah's job description then, I I think is is really very, I mean, I think think it's why verse 15 uh, fits into this picture, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I'm thinking now of like John 6, uh, the feeding of that the Messiah does of the multitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, physical and spiritual. Uh, so this the, this is part of the the um, messianic uh, age of blessing, like in Isaiah 35. Um, you know, physical and yeah. spiritual blessings right. that uh, the Messiah will bring. Well, and then, and even, and, and that kind of, I think, works with the clothing, too, that, like, on the one hand, it's like, you know, you you actually give the, the poor clothing, right? The Lord taught, if you've got two tunics and your uh-huh. neighbor has none, give, you know, give him one, right? Um, well, I mean, that, that goes yeah. back to John the Baptist. But, I mean, like, the idea of, uh, you know, everyone just giving from what they have and, and pooling it together, and so no one goes without, right? And, of course, you saw that. Um, in the first few chapters of Acts in a very particular way, but then the spiritual clothing, right? When the Lord talks yeah. about the wedding feast and how there's a, a wedding the garment, garment, right? And there's a dipping your robes in the blood of the lamb. And so, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's right. Exactly, that you, you see, AJ, that's exactly what I was thinking of because today yeah. I'm looking ahead to uh, All Saints Day coming yeah. up this Sunday and about the white robed. Uh, how do they get these white robes? And uh, by uh, washing them in the blood of the Lamb. So, I mean, there's a lot of, and Jesus with the Beatitudes about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst with righteousness. So it's just a happy coincidence that we're discussing Psalm 132, and it really uh, leads our thinking to some of the readings for All Saints Day coming up. I think it's yeah, it really lines up beautifully there, and I just like the way that you that you put out the um, the, the both and there that in the kingdom of God, it, it's not that we say like oh well you know it, you know I wish you well go on friend and be warm and find shelter right uh, right <laughs> but no we, we we address both the physical and the spiritual needs the the physical clothing and the the physical bread you know like uh, in the Lord's parable um, in Matthew right with a those yeah. on his right and those on his left, when he was naked, when he was hungry, right? So there's the physical that does not get neglected, uh, but the spiritual also comes with it. And um, I, I think that that's kind of the, the beautiful thing about Psalm 132. It's that by, by seeing how the line of David physically failed, right, how actually, mm-hmm. li- literally, uh, the, the line did stop. There was a time when there was no one on David's throne. What's going on, yeah. right? Uh, there was a time when the house of David failed to provide food and to provide clothing for the people. By, by looking at that physical failure for a time, it pointed to how God was going to still do something greater and how spiritually God's promise never fails. Right. And I think there's also an eschatological dimension to this, of course, uh, in the, you know, Jesus often talks about the wedding banquet, right? And in yeah. Revelation, um, uh, that we'll be experiencing this great heavenly banquet of which the Lord's Supper is a foretaste and pointing ahead to, uh, and there'll be no more uh, sorrows and tears, um, and we'll be clothed with the white robes in the presence of the Lord, and there is no temple in that city. Revelation, end of Revelation 21, beginning of 22, for the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. So uh, uh, Jesus obviously is the fulfillment of all these right. promises that we find here in Psalm 132. Uh, well, and that's, a, I think that's a great just conclusion, taking us back to that, that central idea, right? That, you know, the, the, the sure oath, right? In, in verse 11, uh, the, the sure thing, the thing that makes it sure is not a building, um, but it's the word that that's attached to it. You might say the word that's even incarnate in it, as yeah. uh, Pastor Boyce Claire was saying earlier. So that's that that's the true temple. That's that's the son. That's the the true son of David. So, well, brother, it's uh, <laughs> there. There's just there's just no plumbing the depths of of these, these psalms here. But I, I really appreciate uh, again. Uh, finding a way that we were able to make this happen, get to do this, this special uh, bonus podcast here and just really uh, go into depth on this big moment um, for Second Samuel 7 and making the connection to the psalm here. So thank Great. you so much and looking forward and, to and having you on again really soon. Uh, uh, AJ, two yeah. hymns that jumped to my mind. Oh, yeah. yeah Build yeah. on the rock, the church shall stand, and glorious things of you are spoken. Zion, yep. city of our God, I think, play off of this very well. 
thank you for having me on today. Th- thank, thank you, brother. Yeah, those are everyone listening. Uh, those are some, there's some good hymn uh, suggestions right there. And I think if you if you go through those hymns, like you'll just find yourself making lots of cool connections to what we talked about today in Psalm 132 and also Second Samuel 7. Everybody, that was Pastor Charles Henriksen, pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. All right, tomorrow back to regularly scheduled programming, getting back into 2 Samuel chapter 8. Until then, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.